happy Mother's Day. Hope it's been fabulous so far. Woohoo! Hello. <laughs> um, I am excited to be here tonight with you. And um, pretty much, if you are in this room, you know the value of having a mother. Uh, maybe not always the person who raises you, but you all had to be birthed by someone. And as far as uh, I know that still has to be by your mother. So um, you all recognize the importance of having a mother, whether your son, a daughter, a mom, or a dad. You know how important that role is. And I found, as I started looking up some things about mothers and looking for some Mother's Day quotes, I found tons of stuff. Um, William Makepeace Thackeray said, Mother is the name for God in the lips and hearts of little children. I just thought that was so sweet. That's how, you know, having uh, children myself, I thought, oh, how nice that is. Um, Abraham Lincoln said, I remember my mother's prayers, and they've always followed me. They've clung to me all, all, my, all my life. Um, what better than a well-respected president to have wonderful things to say about the prayers of his mother? Um, however... Tonight, even though it's Mother's Day, um, our focus isn't necessarily going to be on the story of a mother, but rather that of a mother-in-law. So any mother-in-laws in the room? No? No, I know there's at least one. All right, well, hopefully a few others, a couple over here. Um, well, when I went to the internet to look up information on mother-in-laws, I found quite a different set of information available in web pages. Um, I found that there were quite a few websites, I actually was surprised, quite a few websites that are uh, committed to the entire sole purpose of complaining about mother-in-laws, writing pages of horrible gifts that you've received from your mother-in-laws, and I found quite a few pages of mother-in-law jokes, um, none of which I'm going to share with you this evening, uh, but if you're interested, I'm sure you've heard a few. You can find them later. Um, we are actually going to be looking at a very famous mother-in-law in the Bible and a mother, um, and that's Naomi. And the story of Naomi is actually found in the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth is in the Old Testament. It is just after the book of Judges, and it's before 1 Samuel and the book of Psalms and the rest of the New Testament at that point. It's a small little book. It has four chapters, and it's obviously named Ruth. Um, not named Naomi, so you're going to find out in a little bit why it's named that. Um, but the story takes place uh, during this time in which uh, the people of Canaan, or God's people, the Israelites, had just wandered in the desert for 40 years. God brought them into this promised land, this land that was flowing with milk and honey. It said that there were grape clusters the size of your head that required two men to carry them on a pole. Like, that's huge grapes. I don't know. If you ever go to the store and you see those itty-bitty baby grapes, that's not what he's talking about. We're talking about huge, giant grapes, this amazing land that God had given his people. And this story takes place about a generation later. So the people have been in the land for a little while, um, and in Deuteronomy 11, if you go back, God promises his people before he takes them into the promised land, as long as you obey me, as long as you follow my words, then I promise that I'm going to water your land, take care of your gardens, give you food to eat, keep your livestock well fed, and I will protect and take care of you. But he says, if you disregard what I have to say, if you don't listen to my commands and follow them, then you are going to be sorry. Basically, he says, you're going to experience drought, you're going to experience famine, you're going to experience loss, and you're going to experience death. 
And here we are, just one generation later, and here the Israelites sit in Canaan in a barren land. There's a drought, nothing's producing, things are falling apart around them. It's basically their own economic downturn, okay? Um, there is a family in uh, this land uh, in a town called Bethlehem. Maybe you've heard of Bethlehem. We sing a song at Christmas about Bethlehem. Um, this is where this takes place. It's a nice little town, a nice little village, quite a few people living there, had been doing well, but suddenly they find themselves experiencing this drought and this famine. And there's this one man named Elimelech. And if you say that a lot of times, it gets kind of confusing, but Elimelech has a family. He has a wife named Naomi, and he has two sons. And Elimelech hears that in a country just over, you know, a river, basically, they're they're doing very well. There's great wealth. They're not having all of these problems with famine and drought. So he decides he's going to close down shop, close up his business, board up his home, leave his land for a little while, and see if he can make it better over in this other uh, country. And the country's name is Moab. So he moves his family to Moab. Uh, how many of you have moved to another country at any time? Anyone in here? Okay. So it's kind of a big deal. You got a lot going on. You got to pack up everything. And if you leave stuff behind, you got to put it in a storage shed or something, have it taken care of. Uh, so Elimelech takes his family, moves to Moab, starts to set up shop, and all of a sudden he dies. It doesn't tell us why he died. It doesn't tell us what happened, um, but he dies. So at that point, here is Naomi left with two sons. What is she going to do? She just got here. She probably doesn't want to go back to Bethlehem because things seem worse over in Bethlehem. At least maybe they can find jobs and take care of themselves. So she begins to raise her sons. And it says that her two sons find foreign women in Moab to marry. They go ahead and get wives. And during this time, um, when sons would get married, them and their wives, their families, would actually stay with their parents and take care of them. Uh, so the sons would care for their families. They would take over the family business and take care of everything. So now Naomi at least is being taken care of. She has her two sons, and she has their two wives. And their wives' names, which will be important later, are Orpah and Ruth. Okay, how many? Orpah's not really a super popular name. Uh, but um, Orpah and Ruth are these two daughter-in-laws that she has, and they come to live with her. Um, they all lived together, it says, for about 10 years, and uh, probably what would have been unusual about this is that Orpah and Ruth don't have any children, okay? Um, during this whole time, they're barren, so they're living with their mother-in-law, getting to know her, taking care of her, hanging out with their husbands, and then it says all of a sudden, after about 10 years, both of their husbands die. I don't know if they died in a family business accident, um, they're... There's no real indication as to what happens, but all of a sudden, Naomi, who's left all that she knows over in Bethlehem, is left with these two young women, two women that she's gotten to know pretty well, because there hasn't been a whole lot of other stuff. There's no grandchildren to take care of or to play with. It's just the three of these women left. And um, Naomi finds herself all alone in a land far away, far away from her roots, and probably what felt like far away from her God. See, Moab didn't worship the God of Israel. 
they didn't worship the one true God. They had lots of gods that they worshiped. So people all around her were living their own separate lifestyle, and here she is basically alone with these two gals that she's taken under her wing and had to get to know what is she going to do. Well, Ruth 1, uh, verses 6 through 13, says, When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she'd been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you've shown to you the dead and to me. May the Lord grant each of you grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them, and they wept aloud and said to her, We'll go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have more sons who could become your husbands? Return home. And even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and gave birth to the sons, would you wait until they grow up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it's more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. So think of what it would mean for Naomi to leave, to make this decision that she's going to leave Moab where she's lived and return to Bethlehem. She left her house and left her business to go make a better life, probably told all her friends, oh, it's going to be so much better when we get there. Things are going to be amazing. Things are going to be wonderful. And now... She's faced with this reality that she has nothing in the land of Moab. And pretty much the only thing she knows that she has in the land of, Beth in, uh, of Canaan, in, in the town of Bethlehem, is some old dried up land, maybe a few friendships, but at least she has her God. Okay? It would be very humbling for her to return to Bethlehem, no husband, no sons, pretty much no possessions, no money, just her and these daughter-in-laws that want to go with her. Well, what does it tell you about the type of person Naomi is when you hear that her daughters-in-law begged her? They wept to go with her. They desired to stay with her and stay in a relationship with her. Something about her, something about her faith that had never changed, it must have permeated everything she did, everything she said, it never says that she took on the belief of the gods of Moab. As a matter of fact, she prayed and mentioned and talked all about the God of Israel, this amazing um, God who, who had affected and changed her life, obviously. The Bible doesn't ever record her cursing God, and it only says that Orpah and Ruth were even more drawn to her in the middle of her misery and in the middle of her grief and her bitterness. They were willing to leave everything behind, their families, their relatives, their personal comfort, to go and be with her. Well, if you're sitting here and you're a believer, if you're a Christian, do people know about your faith? Do they know when something is hard, something that's happening to you? Do they recognize that you have a faith, that you're a Christian? Um, I have a, a time that I can just remember this very specific experience um, in which I had just started working at just this little craft store uh, to be able to get out and do some stuff. And I remember there was this young gal who worked there. And one day she finally said to me, what is it about you? 
I just don't understand. You always seem to be positive. Even when things are not going well, even when like you have crazy stuff going on, you are never upset and just freaked out about it. Why is that? And I can just remember her asking me that question. What was it about me, about God in my life that was permeating the situation and the relationship that I have? What is it about you that God does that in your life to those around you? Well, Naomi had obviously been accepting and kind of her daughter-in-laws as non-Israelites. Her daughter-in-laws probably worshipped other gods, probably still maintained some of their customs that they'd grown up for. Um, grown up with. And so probably that's why she was so concerned, why she tried to talk Ruth and Orpah out of going back to Israel with her. The Israelites would not have been tolerant of worshiping other gods, of holding up other pagan customs that maybe they had, celebrating certain pagan holidays. They just wouldn't have had that. Um, And she knew that that was going to be hard on them. It's not that she didn't want them to go and have a better life and to stay with her and to make her happy and to keep those relationships. She just knew it was going to be really, really hard. Location change and cultural change would be difficult for them, and she didn't want them to suffer just on her account. Well, think about the people that you have influence over. What does your attitude and your love and demeanor towards them say? Are you conditional in how you accept them? Or are you loving and accept them for who they are, just like Naomi accepted Ruth and Orpah, that they had some things about them and some things that they did that she might not have agreed with, but it didn't matter. She had their best interests in mind. She loved them. She was concerned about them. It's one of the things that makes Naomi unique. Even when these girls were still connected to their gods and still connected to these other things, she wanted the best for them. She wanted to see them thrive. Naomi knew that the choice for Orpah and Ruth to leave their homes, to leave their families, to leave their customs, to leave everything that they'd grown up with had to be a personal desire. She believes that so much that she gave them a blessing. She told them, I'm okay if you leave. It's fine. You can go back. I want you to be happy. I not only want you to be happy, I want you to marry other men. I want you to have a life and to have children and to have families. She blessed them with that and blessed them so that they would experience no guilt in leaving her and going back. How do you show happiness? How do you show a desire for others' happiness to them? Even when they're doing something that may not benefit you that may not be in your best interest, but might be in their best interest. Do you utter words of blessing upon them when you depart, just like Naomi did? Do you offer them blessing when you are at difference with them? What an example Naomi was of this. Well, in uh, Ruth 1, in verses 14 and 15, it says, And they wept again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and to her gods. Go back with her. Orpah couldn't commit. She knew she couldn't handle it, being a foreign person in a foreign place, having to give up some of those cultural things and customs that she so much loved. She probably thought, if I'm going back as as a foreigner, 
Will I ever find another husband? Will I grow to be an old lady and have no friends here? Naomi knew that Orpah was going to have to make the decision on her own. So many people come so close to Jesus, just like Orpah was so close to Naomi and her God, and they love everything about the thought of being with that person. They love everything about the thought of being with Jesus, of the great things that he's done, but they can never come to a point in their life at which they commit to surrender to it and to give up their life and to give up their old ways and their old habits. Just like Orpah could not commit to the God of Israel, to this God of Naomi that had given her the strength and this wisdom, they struggle. Orpah had to make the decision for herself, and she made the decision to abandon Naomi and to go back to her home. Ruth, on the other hand, is resolute. She's committed. She says, I am going with my mother-in-law. It's okay. I don't know what her family life had been like. She decides it doesn't matter. I'm going to go. And it says that she clings to Naomi. So Ruth is a grown woman at this point. Not, you know, she's probably in her mid to late 20s. So she's not like a child grabbing hold, clinging to Naomi's leg, and Naomi's having to drag her out of the country. But it says that she clung to her, that she stayed close to her, that she stayed and said she wanted to be part of her, wanted to stay in relationship with her. She had such a great love for her mother-in-law that she wanted whatever it was that Naomi had. She wanted to be with her. Um, Ruth saw a godly example and decided to follow a woman who's faced such a great hardship and such great sacrifice, but has never once cursed God, never once turned against and cursed the person, the, the God that has created her that she's trusted, trusted it in. She chooses to follow this woman in the midst of hardship, to follow her into what could be great rejection back to Bethlehem, I mean, it has been 10, 11 years, but really, what's there? Will the people even be accepting of them? She chooses to follow Naomi, who, no matter what's going to happen, is honoring God, is listening to God, and is following him. Well, what do others say about you? And what do others say about God in the midst of your hardships, in the midst of your sacrifice? What do you say about God in the midst of your hardships and sacrifice to those around you, to those that you have influence over? Do you look for guidance from those that have it easy? Or do you watch those who are suffering, who are in the midst of hardship, who are in the midst of rejection and sacrifice, and see what kind of an example they're being, what they say about God, At this point, Ruth comes to this critical moment. She's probably wept with Naomi. She's clung to Naomi. She's committed her life to following Naomi and to being with her. And Ruth utters these words. Verse 16. Do not urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. 
the words that Ruth says aren't just a nice little poem or something nice that fits into a song that we can sing. Uh, the, rude, the words that Ruth uttered are her declaration of a change. It is her moment of salvation, her moment of life change, that she is no longer going to be a Moabite. She's no longer going to follow the customs and these cultural things that the Moabites would have followed, but she's going to become an Israelite. If she's going with Naomi, she's going in all the way in. I'm going to follow your God. I'm going to do your things. I'm going to I'm going to be with your people. I'm going to go to the point of death with you. Whatever that looks like, I will be by your side. It's not just a nice thing that she utters and says, hey, I'm going to stick around with you. Don't worry, we'll be friends forever. You know, they didn't get a nice little necklace and, and each get half a heart and go, ooh, best friends forever. Um, this is much more. It's about Ruth's declaration of her change, of a life change at this point. So at this point, Naomi and Ruth set out for Bethlehem alone. They didn't have any servants. They probably didn't have many possessions, so they didn't need father and son moving company to pack up their things and move it back to Bethlehem. Uh, they were returning to a house in Bethlehem that had probably been boarded up, returning to a yard and to land that was full of weeds. Who knows, somebody else may have come in and, and squatted on their property and started plowing it and farming it for their own. Who knew what they were going to come back to? It says it's about a 40-mile trek uphill to get from Moab back to Bethlehem. Now, if you want to know what that's like, 40 miles uphill is walking, and they're walking, by the way, is walking from here at Pantano to my house, okay? And I live way north on Oracle Road, near Saddlebrook, if you know where that is. I talk to people who are like, I've never been that far, it's so far. Hey, it's about 40 miles and it's uphill. I figured out it would take me at least five days to walk that far and there's a good chance it would take me even longer than that. I just, I'm not good at that kind of stuff. Um, but it would be a pretty difficult trip for two ladies to make through this rugged, uphill country to get back to Bethlehem. Naomi's return to Bethlehem wasn't just a return to her old ways and her old lifestyle and her old neighborhood, but it was really a return to God for her. She was leaving the land of the godless, the land of actually the many gods, uh, which were none of the true gods, and she was going to be returning back to a place that God was in, where God was worshipped. Verse 19 says, so the two women went until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Well, Naomi had probably been well known. The women recognized her, although they weren't totally sure it was her because she probably had aged a little bit with all that had gone on with her, losing her husband, losing her son, having to work really, her sons having to work really hard. And you know that once the women saw her and started talking, everybody in town knew. It didn't take long. It's just the way that it is. I'm sorry. We've all experienced it. We are part of it. When you see something happening, women are the first to start getting the word out there and letting everybody know what's happening. Oh, Naomi's back in town. Have you seen her? She's got this woman with her. I don't know who she is. They're by themselves. Lots is going on. Well, I bet walking into town, into Bethlehem, with all the whispers, the people who'd seen her coming, was kind of difficult. 
Have you ever had to face the music? To walk into that room, walk into your place of business? Man, I think junior high is like the little petri culture dish of this, of having to walk in every day to somebody knowing something about someone. And, and you have to walk into it and just deal with it. Well, this was going to be a moment where one of two things could happen. Either Naomi was going to continue with her godly example, or things were going to go south really quick. Verse 20. Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. Okay, this one little verse. Naomi chooses to say, the Lord has made my life really bitter. She doesn't want to be called what her name is. Her name means pleasant one, so she must have been just a joy to be around, had this wonderful, beautiful name. She wants people now to recognize something's different, that 10, 11 years of a hard life, of sacrifice, of losses has changed her. She wasn't blaming God for these losses. She just was recognizing that God was in this. God was part of it. And she desired to be known for something else. Naomi's acknowledgement of her bitterness was not actually giving the word power. It wasn't being used as a verb. It was being used as an adjective to describe a point in time at which she had come to. It was a description of the status of her life. She had left full with so much going on, with so much hope, and she'd come back very empty, without the things that she had loved, without the things that she had left with. Too often, uh, we let all of these adjectives that describe the events of our lives begin to define our actions. They begin to get played out. The anger that resulted from a disappointment turns into angry outbursts, turns into us trying to find ways to bring malice into somebody else's life. Our disappointments start to bring others down. Our grief over a loss turns into shutting down our relationships, into avoiding interaction with others. We start to project our misery onto others. Yet Naomi, in this moment, wasn't bitter against the Lord. Had she been, she would have stayed away. She wouldn't have come back to these people. Her use of wanting to be called bitter is a description of where she was at. See, the key to dealing with our bitterness, our anger, our disappointment, our this-isn't-fair experiences that we go through is drawing close to God and coming close to those who draw close to him. The experiences you have The words that are placed upon you don't have to define you. They don't discount you. They don't discredit you. They don't make you someone else. They merely point to a moment in time at which you can move forward through. Or you can stay stagnant. You can choose to draw close to God in the midst of those times of anger, in the midst of those times of disappointment, in the midst of those times of saying, this isn't fair, I didn't think this is what was going to happen. You can draw close to God 
at those times, and he's going to uphold you. He will move you forward. The other thing you can do is you can draw close to others. It's drawing close to God and drawing close to others who draw close to him, which is our community of believers, your small group, your family, your church. You can use those relationships to draw close to God and be upheld and experience the fullness of God in the midst of your struggle and your sacrifice and your disappointment. Well, at this point, what an example Naomi is to not only those around her, but still to Ruth, this Moabite woman who's learning the ropes, figuring out what does it mean all of a sudden to have a relationship with God. I've seen it played out here and there, but now she's truly experiencing the fullness of this relationship being played out. We come to the end of chapter one at this point, and that's what we end up, we could spend four weeks talking about the book of Ruth, but at this point we come to the end of chapter one, and there's this one little verse that transitions us into the rest of the story. It says, so Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. This is so important. God brought Naomi and Ruth back into a land, into a relationship with him at just the perfect time. It was the beginning of the barley harvest, and the barley harvest was the first harvest. There were quite a few harvests that took place um, in the, with the Israelites in their communities and actually in all of the farming communities. The barley harvest was the first, and the reason why this is so important is that God brought them back at a time in which they could take care of themselves. They would be able to go to the field. They'd be able to get food. Food was going to be in abundance at this point. It wasn't in the middle of the winter when there wouldn't have been a chance for them to have any way to care for themselves and to take care of themselves. But God brought them back at exactly the right time. See, God takes notice of those moments when we need just a little bit of encouragement, of those moments when we need to, to trust him, but in those moments that we, he knows are going to be best for us. Well, chapter two uh, is known as, I like to call it, The Bachelor. How many of you watch The Bachelor? It's, how many of you won't admit that you watch The Bachelor? Yeah, okay. I know some of you do. I've seen your, tweet. I've seen your tweets. I've seen your Facebook posts. Okay, oh my gosh, he didn't give her the rose. What was he thinking? Okay. Um, I actually haven't seen a lot of episodes of The Bachelor, but um, chapter two seems to fit in really well with what's happening here with The Bachelor. Uh, we're introduced to this main character named Boaz, and Boaz is basically the president and CEO of his company. He's extremely wealthy. His company happens to be a bunch of fields. Okay? Um, he is well-known. He is wealthy. He is powerful. Verse 1 in it tells us that he's a man of great standing. And when you go to chapter 4, it says he had the authority to call all of the elders of the city together for a meeting. Okay? So he was kind of a bigwig. Boaz um, would have been considerably older than Ruth because his mother was a woman named Rahab. And Rahab was a prostitute that hid the um, Israelite spies 
as they were getting ready to come into the land and take it over. So a whole generation before his mom had been around. Um, Boaz had been born, and for some reason, as far as we know, Boaz had never taken a wife. He'd never, he'd been too busy, I guess, gathering land and setting up his business, setting up his company. I assume that's kind of what happens with these gentlemen on The Bachelor. They spend a lot of their time and energy making their wealth, and then once they get things going really good, they get around to looking for a wife. So that's what's happening here um, with that. Uh, when Boaz enters his field the first time, he says to all of his workers, the Lord be with you. And all of his workers turn to him and respond, the Lord bless you. What would happen if your boss walked into your office and said, the Lord be with you. What would the response be of those around you? Now, I guess it depends on who your boss is and how, <laughs> what kind of relationship you have with them. But I have found at most places I've worked, there's usually one or two people that aren't real happy with the boss. But you have here all of these employees who respond with this incredible blessing, not out of fear, but out of gratefulness to their boss, the Lord be with you. What would it be like to work at a place like that? I think it would just be absolutely fabulous. Well, Ruth recognized at this time that she needs to do something to help out her mother-in-law, to help take care of them. So as is custom in Israel, in, the, in Bethlehem at the time, she went out, told her mother-in-law, I'm going to go get a job. And I know I'm not going to get paid for this job, but I'm at least going to find us some food. It's basically, in essence, the equivalent um, of, of begging without the begging part. They go out, the um, destitute or the poor would go out to a field, and as the workers would come through and they would be harvesting this barley and later harvesting the wheat, the poor would come along behind them and pick out all the little pieces of grain that fell to the ground out of the... Um, out of the wheat and the barley stalks that they were, were cutting down. Okay, so it's not just a job where she got to go around and pick up these big bundles and throw them on her back and take them home. She had a bucket. She would get down, and she would pick up grain by grain each little piece of barley and later on each little piece of wheat until she had a nice little five-gallon bucket full. Okay, and she would then take that home and provide food for herself and for Naomi. And it's possible that to get some money for their other living um, expenses, that they would maybe make that into loaves of bread and sell it to other people in the neighborhood, or that they would sell their um, wheat and their barley to other people, their flour. Um, but she worked really hard. So her mother-in-law said, I think that's a great idea. Go for it. She goes out to, the, to a field, stops at probably the first one she sees, doesn't know who it belongs to, and she goes along and does what all the other poor people do, along the edges of the field, picking things up. And what do you know? She ends up in the field of Boaz. This person, who is this wealthy, good-looking guy who comes around. Well, Boaz immediately takes notice of her, asks about her to all of his workers. Um, all of his workers in... I won't go ahead and read this to you, but it basically, he says, hey, who's that lady over there working in my field? And his workers said, oh, it's this Moabitess 
she is an amazing worker. You can't believe what she's been doing and how well she's doing. Um, and she uh, just has like worked from sunup to sundown every day that she's been here. And Boaz really takes an affection for her. He talks to her, calls her over, tells her, hey, I'm going to give you protection. I'm going to give you uh, water. I'm going to give you food. You can take a little extra home. I've heard how you've taken care of your mother-in-law. And um, go, he goes ahead and gives her a great blessing, puts that upon her, um, and offers her all of these provisions. While Ruth returns home, um, she tells her mother-in-law everything that's happened. And at this point, her mother-in-law says to her, guess what I just remembered? Boaz, that guy you were working for who talked to you, he happens to be related to us. Not only is he related to us, but we have a custom that he is going to, he can be our redeemer. He can buy our land, he can marry you, and uh, we'll be debt-free. You can have babies. You can be taken care of. This is a thing of great honor. So uh, Ruth listens to her wise mother-in-law, does as she says, and continues working hard. Um, at the end of the harvest, Boaz puts together this party. And uh, I'm just kind of grouping some things together so that you know what's happening here at the end. Uh, Boaz puts together a party to celebrate the hard work that everybody's done out in the fields. He is going to have an office party. Everybody's invited. Come on, we're going to have a good time. There's going to be food. There's going to be drinking. Uh, we're going to be socializing and fellowshipping. And so Naomi says to her daughter-in-law, hey, I got you an invitation to the party. Not only that, I want you to go use some water and bathe, and I want you to use our precious perfume, put some perfume on, make yourself smell good. That would have been very expensive for them at the time. And here's what I want you to do. Hang out at the party, have a good time, mingle, but don't be the crazy girl, okay? Don't be going around trying to get noticed, trying to get recognized. Wait till the party dies down and everybody leaves. You know, hang out in the bathroom. I don't know what it is where she was hiding at, but uh, when Boaz goes to bed, go lay down at his feet. Okay, I don't know about you, but it doesn't matter who tells me to do that. I would start to be a little skeptical. As strange as it is, Ruth went ahead and followed her mother-in-law's advice. When she laid down at the feet of Boaz, he asked her what she was there for, and she said, you're my relative. You're my kinsman redeemer. Will you marry me? Okay, that's what she says to him. That's her conversation. And guess what Boaz says? Sure. That sounds perfect. You know what? I would love to, but there's one little problem. You have a relative that is first in line to be your redeemer. I'm actually second in line, and I, go, I have to go talk to him first. Ruth doesn't say anything. She listens, takes the instructions that Boaz gives her, and she goes home to her mother-in-law. Um, do you trust God when things suddenly look like they're falling apart? When the wise advice you got, the plans you have, start to come apart and start to be going seemingly wrong? 
Do you start to give other advice to friends when they come to you and say, look, I thought this is what God wanted me to do, but it's not working out. There seems to be a kink. I don't know why it's not working. What do you say to people in that moment? Do you tell them, hey, I'm going to pray with you. Let's just trust that what God showed you is going to work out. Or do you say, oh, we must have been wrong. God must have been wrong at first. Let's figure out what we can do about this. Well, Naomi had Ruth's best interest in mind and sat down and prayed with her. She was reassuring to her. Boaz did as he said. He went to this other relative, asked if he wanted to marry Ruth. The other relative was like, oh, no, I have got my hands full. I do not need more land, and I do not need another wife. I'm good. Boaz returned to Ruth, and he presented her with the rose. She was his choice, and it didn't take very long for Ruth and Boaz to be married. Not only did it not take long for Naomi and Ruth's circumstances to change, to suddenly being poor and destitute, to being married and wealthy, to being taken care of. But Naomi became a grandmother. Ruth had become pregnant, had a son, which would have been uh, one of the most blessed things that could have happened. They um, preserved their family name. They kept their land. It was bought for them. The women of Bethlehem, it says, no longer gossiped about Naomi, but instead they spoke blessings over her. They blessed her for what had occurred, what God had done for her, how God had preserved her and preserved her family. Ruth, the foreigner from Moab, was no longer seen as a non-Israelite, no longer seen as an outsider, but she was accepted. She was not only accepted by um, the people of Bethlehem, but she was accepted by all of the people, all of the Israelites, all of the Jews because she became the great-grandmother to David, the one man who was called the um, man after God's own heart, who became our second king of Israel. After that, we know that Jesus himself came from the line of David, which means that he came from this poor, destitute Ruth who had longed to be filled and longed to be to be spoken into by somebody of great wisdom and somebody of great influence. If you go back this week and you read through the four chapters of Ruth, you're going to notice something. You see, when Naomi returned to Bethlehem, what did she tell the women? She said, call me bitter. Don't call me Naomi any longer. I'm bitter. But God was so good to her in her example that she was to Ruth. God never again calls her Mara. She doesn't call her bitter. God continues to call her Naomi. Naomi was not remembered for her grief or her difficulty or her hardship or her lowly state. But she was remembered for the legacy and the influence that she had on a young woman. And that young woman was... Ruth and Ruth was remembered for her willingness to align herself of somebody of great influence with somebody who demonstrated godliness, with somebody who demonstrated love. She trusted Naomi. She trusted her wisdom. She trusted her godliness. She trusted her wise direction. So the question you have to ask at this point is, who are you aligning yourself with? Who do you put yourself under? 
Who are you influencing with your faith? Is your faith quiet and stagnant? Or is your faith known to those around you? Are you using your life as a great godly influence? Are you trusting God with your faith? Are you trusting that he will lead you and broaden your borders, broaden your faith, and give you great influence over those who are around you? Whether you're a mother, a grandmother, a father, a son, a daughter, a friend, a loner, whether you're the boss or you're the employee, you are always going to be influenced by somebody. You are always going to be influencing others. You're responsible for the legacy that you leave and what better legacy to leave than one of someone who draws close to God and who loves other people. As we close tonight, we want to invite you into a time in which you can reflect on what we talked about. We want to invite you into a time in which we're going to take communion. Um, if you're a guest with us and this is your first time here, we want you to feel comfortable. We want you to sit back or you are welcome to join us at one of the communion stations around the room and participate. It's our time that we can remember what Jesus, who the Bible says is our kinsman redeemer, did for us. That we can remember that he paid a price for our debt so that we can have freedom from sin, we can have freedom from the things that disappoint us and that we find ourselves in bondage of, and we can have the opportunity at a new life.